Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com. I'm Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest is Dr. Christian Nemitz. He's head of political economy for the Institute of Economic Affairs. Christian Nemitz, a pleasure to meet you, sir. Thanks for having me. So my, my first question, I guess, would be, um, we can talk about the, the, the role of the IEA, but before even that, how did you, how, what do you do there and how did you get to, to where you are now? Right. Well, I'm currently the head of political economy, which um, can involve a, a, a broad scope of research topics. It's uh, well, the, the way it works normally is that you have one main topic that you're working on at a time. Over the past few years, for me, that's been the revival of socialism. Before that, it used to be healthcare, and before that, I used to write on poverty, poverty measurement. Uh, and what to do about it. And then alongside, you have a couple of um, of minor topics that that you also do some, some work on uh, to a lesser extent. And once you've been there for a while, as, as I have, the things that you've worked on previously would come back to haunt you. So, for example, I've, I've written a, a book on, on healthcare, health system reform four years ago and uh, saying that ideally we should not have a national health service. We should have a, a universal private insurance system. And since this isn't a crowded field, there aren't many people in the country who are criticizing the NHS from a system level perspective. I keep getting requests to talk about that. So that's normally how, how it works. It, it generates its own demand. Um, you more or less accidentally find your own niche. You find your your positions that are associated with you, and that would then be uh, what, 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 what you're working on. It can be partly demand-driven. So the basic idea of a, of a think tank, uh, and not just the IA, pretty much all think tanks, is that you try to change uh, what's known as the the Overton window, yeah. which is roughly the the permitted um, range of political opinions, the the permitted range of of debate, uh, the the boundaries, the spectrum of ideas that are considered at least worthy of consideration, even if they're not popular. Think ideas that are outside of the Overton window are considered beyond the pale. That's uh, something that nobody would, would, would even want to discuss. It's just considered insane. And something that is within the Overton window is at least worthy of a discussion. And um, at any given time, the boundaries of the Overton window appear to us as fixed and obvious, but in fact, they're not obvious at all. They they can sometimes shift very rapidly. Uh, privatization was not a mainstream. Uh, being in favor of privatization was not a mainstream opinion until maybe the late 70s or so, and uh, then it became a reality in the Thatcher years. And that that's partly because liberal think tanks pushed those boundaries. And more recently, we've seen. Unfortunately, the opposite happening uh, with socialism becoming a mainstream opinion again, whereas five, six, seven years ago, it would have been associated with French groups like the Socialist Workers' Party uh, standing outside of a tube station and trying to sell the socialist worker. And this, this is uh, the, the, this battle of ideas. This is what think tanks are about. And um, yeah, within that sector. I do the the research, the the, the more uh, in depth publications, and then also the dissemination, uh, giving talks about it, writing shorter articles, and uh, and of course disseminating it on Twitter. While you while you mention that, the thought of, does does occur to me: Has there ever in all of recorded history ever been a socialist worker? 
Um, well, there, there must be some, but uh, <laughs> it's, it is, has generally been, of course, a, an, an educated upper class movement. Yeah, this, this is true everywhere. Do you I think, do, sorry, yeah, do, you, do you think the um, the rise or the spread of coronavirus has completely exploded the Overton window now? In other words, there's so much more that's on the table that, that was never on the table until this, this pandemic. It has, above all, uh, confused the Overton window. It's not yeah. quite clear where the boundaries are right now. A lot of these things, I'm, I'm less pessimistic than some on the on the liberal side. Uh, some people believe on on the, the liberal side of, of things believe that this will be this will normalize all sorts of state interventions, nanny state measures, authoritarian measures, and this will become the new normal. But I'm not convinced by that. I mean, I'm, I'm normally very pessimistic about political trends, but not so much in this case, because what happens is it is true that on previous occasions, emergency situations have led to expansions of the state, which then became permanent. Mm. For example, rent controls were brought in initially uh, during the First World War. It was meant to be an emergency measure. And then they stayed with us until the late 80s or so. Mm. And uh, all the nationalizations or, or, or uh, de facto government takeovers that happened during the Second World War then became permanent, stayed with us also until the 80s again. So there are historical precedents for that. It's just that in these cases, there were always people arguing for those changes long before they happened. And it's just that once they were there, they became the new normal, they became permanent. Those people then said, well, look, we've done it now and it isn't so bad. Why don't we just keep it that way? Whereas the coronavirus measures are more exceptional and specific. There, there was just no constituency before that said, we should have emergency loans for businesses the whole time. We should have massive bailout packages for lots of industries the whole time. And, and certainly there was nobody saying we should uh, walk around in masks indoors all the time. So I don't buy the idea that uh, once this is accepted, people will, or governments will say, let's do this all the time, or let's do it to uh, to deal with the flu. I think it will be quite clear that this is a one-off, once-in-a-century event, and it requires special measures, or even if you think it doesn't require them, um, I, I don't think people will make that leap from saying, okay, we've done this during the coronavirus pandemic, so therefore let's now also do it during a flu wave. It's just on a different scale. I noticed from the IEA website that it doesn't have a like a, a forced compulsory house view, let's say in economic terms. Do you, do you individually have a any kind of sort of self-declared bias? My, mine would be a, a deep sympathy, for example, for the Austrian or classical economic school. Do you have any? Do you nurse any sort of uh, preference in in economic terms? Um, yeah, I have a lot of time for the Austrian School of Economics, not least because, well, mainstream economics, uh, neoclassical economics, the way it's told is, is quite sterile. It's not mm. massive fun. I, I studied economics, but I'm, I wouldn't, I don't think I would recommend it to to anyone. Uh, I, I mean, I, I did it, and once once. I had started it, I wanted to see it through, but I can't claim that I enjoyed it massively. And the Austrian school stands for more uh, intuitive, logical approach to economics, uh, emphasizes the role of entrepreneurship, discovering knowledge, whereas mainstream neoclassical economics is just 
it's just formulas. You you can be. Let's put it this way: the the people with the best grades in in economics are generally simply the people who are best at maths. Yeah. But you you can be good at maths and uh, still not get economics. Uh, it doesn't help you very much if you can do all the the modeling and the formulas, uh, but. Uh, you don't have an intuitive feel for what cons- constitutes a good economic policy or a bad economic policy. Well, perhaps we could maybe institute neo-Keynesian economics as an alternative to the penal system. So instead of putting people in jail, you just make them study Keynesian economics instead. Save a lot of money. Yeah, if, if I didn't enjoy it, uh, I, I guess most people <laughs> would enjoy it uh, even less. I, I nonetheless don't call myself an, an Austrian economist yeah. because there are at least strands within the, the Austrian school that, that are very anti-empirical, that are very much against um, using empirical evidence to to uh, refute or, or confirm a position. And the trouble with that is that then it can become a bit almost like Marxism, that you can... You, you end up with your position and you you define it in such a way that it can't be falsified. It gets, a bit, can, it gets a bit like a religious, like a cult almost. It, it can, yes. I, I don't think that's what the original uh, Austrian economists wanted, but it can be distorted in, in that way. So there, when it comes to using empirical evidence, I'm, I'm again more on the, on the mainstream economics side, Chicago school. There, there is a place for empirical evidence. Is what I'm saying because you never know. You 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 can have uh, a reasoning that sounds very logical and sound in your mind, but there might be, and you might have made a mistake that that you're not aware of. So look at the empirical evidence and just see how it pans out. It's like market psychology, isn't it? Like the psychology of crowds and how people react to things may be completely different to to how you expect. So you've you've got to test certain theories in the real world. I mean, like for example, a very simple one might be. If you're driving along the motorway and you see a sign that says that there's a, an act, a, a roadworks up ahead in two miles, you'd expect people to slow down. But actually, what they might do is speed up because they think, well, actually, I'm going to be delayed now, so I better go faster while I can to compensate for when I've got to slow down. So the reaction of people could be completely different to what you what you intend in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that that would be behavioral economics. I'm sure that they would have some term for this. There's probably some some term for for uh, the, the something something bias, but uh, yeah, that's that's right. Uh, this this these are just the unforeseen things that there can be. What, what seems logical to you doesn't necessarily pan out in that way. And this is something where I have come across. Austrian economists who, uh, who who just cling to some idea, and if you show them, no, actually, that there's there's a dozen empirical studies which which show that this isn't how it works. They'd say, yeah, this is just empiricism; doesn't matter. Um, and and in, in this way, you, you can you can protect yourself, you can protect your worldview from refutation, and that's always a dangerous thing to do. So, do you have a blend of economics that works for you, picking from all different disciplines? <laughs> Well, I, I couldn't give you a detailed breakdown. Uh, I, I couldn't say it's 35% Austrian economics, 40% Chicago score. But yeah, broadly, um, I'm trying to combine uh, this focus on knowledge and entrepreneurship from, from the Austrian school and the more intuitive and logical approach, but also being in favor of uh, empirical testing 
and uh, and and modeling from from the Chicago school where where it suits. I think it's often the case that um, empirical modeling isn't great if you try to if you try if you're dealing with something that's just too big. That's why economic forecasts don't work generally. You can't model what the economy is going to look like in two or three years' time, uh, let alone in, in ten years' time. But if you're dealing with a more specific situation, let's say when I when I wrote about the healthcare, I came across issues where there was some change to the payment formula, how doctors are paid. It applies to some hospitals, but not others. Well, this is something where you, you can only look at it empirically. You can see, do we see differences? Uh, and do the hospitals which, which use one payment formula systematically differ from the hospitals which use a different formula? And this is something where you're looking at a, a fairly narrow and specific change and that's something you, you can only uh, study the effect empirically rather than come up with some some theory this is uh, a priori we know that it has to pan out in this way no this is something where empirical modeling makes a lot of sense you've written a book socialism the failed idea that never dies and there seems to be i mean you mentioned that you've you've studied healthcare and socialism it seems that now there's a sweet spot in which both of those are sort of combining in in sort of the daily news flow. Why do you think socialism is the, the you know the vampire that can never be properly killed off? Is it is it because young people are basically stupid and historically illiterate? There are people who who say that uh, a lot of conservatives uh, have the idea that the reason why it's experiencing a comeback is simply that young people don't know much about it. They lack the, the folk memory of the Cold War. But I don't think it is that, because if that were the case, you would have to show that those who are more informed are less likely to be socialists. Mm. And I've, well, this hasn't been studied, but I'm pretty sure that if you did that, that's not what you what we would see in the data. Because the the socialists that, uh, that I argue with, or the, the ones that I cite in the book and things I've written after that, are quite well informed about the history of socialism. And their, their, their reading of it is, is very selective. They know enough to distance themselves from real world applications of socialism. They would look at the history of the Soviet Union or, or the Eastern Bloc generally, and block-free states, uh, Albania, whatever, uh, and they would know just enough about them to, uh, to find a reason for dismissing it as not socialists, they would say, well, Marx said X, and but they did Y, so therefore it cannot have been socialist, which, which is, which is of course, nonsense. Uh, political and economic theories are never implemented in pure form. You can, you can always say this, this no economy uh, conforms purely to any uh, economic theory or political theory by the same logic you could you could say no country in the world is capitalist or no country in the world is anything because uh, there are always some some deviations so that but but yeah I think the the uh, the basic problem is that um, if you look at the original Marxist ideas they sound they can sound superficially appealing they mm. Just the idea that uh, rather than having capitalists uh, making decisions about their property, you could have the people, all of us together, making decisions as a group. 
and uh, we just collectively shape our fate. And this sounds appealing. It, it doesn't. It doesn't sound authoritarian. It wasn't meant to be authoritarian. There are reasons why it turned out that way, but that's quite uh, quite hard to to explain. Um, and therefore, if you read the original uh, Marxist um, outlines of how how a socialist society was supposed to look like, uh, for, for example, Lenin's work uh, before he came to power, describing a, a worker state democratically run, it sounds pretty appealing. And if you then compare that to the, to the actual reality of places like the Soviet Union, there's, there's just such a, such a massive gap between how it was supposed to be and how it actually was, that there is a temptation to believe that uh, they, they cannot have seriously tried it. There is just uh, there is a temptation to believe that there's just no way in which you could honestly start with those noble intentions and then create such a dystopian hellhole. But it's like always when somebody promises you the world and then massively under delivers, massively underperforms, there's always two possibilities. It could be that their original promises were just unrealistic and what they delivered was as good as it gets. Uh, they had unrealistic ideas what they could deliver. Or it could be that they didn't sincerely try. Those are, you always have those two possibilities. And uh, the, the gap is just between the original intentions and the actual outcomes is just so wide that it is tempting, I guess, to assume that it cannot have been a serious attempt. They cannot have meant it. The, the, to believe that there is no way you could start with such intentions and then build uh, such a such a terrible hellhole. But I'm convinced that, that that is not what happened. The people who ran the Eastern Bloc states and uh, socialist systems elsewhere, Mao, West China, Cuba, North Vietnam, um, Tanzania, Mozambique, wherever you want to. These, these are usually, these were these places were run by committed Marxists, people who had read and understood Marx, Marx and Lenin in their in in their youth, and uh, joined the socialist cause not for opportunistic reasons, but at a time when that was a very very much a, a fringe cause and something that they they couldn't have hoped that this would bring them to power. It's just that once they were in power, they realized, oh, well, it, uh, hang on, this doesn't work the way I, I thought it would. And that was always the problem. Uh, Lenin uh, wrote a book about how, um, in 1917, just before he came to power, wrote a book, uh, the, the State and Revolution, in which he talks about how socialism would mean a worker-run uh, state, or rather there wouldn't be much of a state. What he describes, the, the society he describes, doesn't sound anything like the Soviet Union. Right. That's because he imagined it would always be very easy. He thought you just need to kick out the capitalists and then the workers will take over. They will run things democratically like a big working men's club, like a, a working men's pub where you have <laughs> your your um, whatever you do there, raising money for a common cause or whatever, make, making some, some rules for your club. Uh, democratically, and he thought, well, you can just extrapolate from this to the entire economy. That's all it takes, and that's how it would work. It's just once it was in power, he noticed, no, not how it works. Do you think that the governments, the UK government's handling of coronavirus, such as it's handled anything, um, makes your vision of, of universal healthcare without the NHS more or less likely now? 
Um, well, it's never been particularly likely. It's one of those things. This is, I mean, my my. It probably, uh, it, probably it probably counts as a big, hairy, audacious goal in the scheme of things. Yeah, absolutely. It's the the universal healthcare without the NHS is the sort of book that you, I guess, you can only write if you work for a think tank, where <laughs> you you can engage in pie in the sky thinking, knowing that this will not become a reality. Um, and that hasn't changed very much. The reason why I keep banging on about this anyway, knowing that I can't win, is simply that my opponents will keep banging on about it anyway. It's not as if I could just opt out and pretend pretend that this isn't happening. Um, we have this paranoia in Britain uh, that there is always someone saying, that there are, there's a secret plan, a conspiracy to privatize the NHS, uh, sell it off and replace it with a US-style system. And we've, we, we've got these periodic outbreaks of... Who, this, who, this who, who on earth would buy it? <laughs> yeah, there's, there's lots of uh, logical problems with that idea, but non, <laughs> non, nonetheless, it doesn't go away. Uh, in, in the book, I, I, I briefly go into the, the history of this. You can find articles from 40 years ago saying the government is secretly planning to sell off the NHS. Within five years, the NHS will be gone. Within five years, we will have a US-style system. People have always said this for uh, at least 40 years, possibly longer. That's always existed. And therefore, this means if you are, broadly speaking, on economically liberal, your opponents will always accuse you of trying to do that, of, uh, of trying to dismantle the NHS, um, replacing it with the US-style system. And therefore, I thought if, if we have to, if these accusations are, uh, are made anyway, you might as well be upfront and describe what, what a market-oriented alternative could look like in practice. And you can show that it doesn't have to look anything like the US system. There are already universal private insurance systems. It's not something that I dreamt up in, in my think tank office in SW1 in Westminster. It's something that already exists and uh, that, that, that covers well over 100 million people. And that's been around for over 100 years, and it's something that uh, we, we can we could absolutely adopt here and still have a healthcare system that covers everybody, irrespective of ability to pay. But going back more specifically to your question, uh, does it become more or less likely? Um, well, it's never been likely, but what happens now could go either way. We see, on the one hand, the, the cult around the NHS uh, becoming stronger than ever. We, we've had the, the clap for the NHS ritual with people being named and shamed if they didn't participate in that. And that has strengthened the commitment to the NHS, of course. But then there's also been, at least in some journalistic circles, I've seen a bit more curiosity about how are other healthcare systems dealing with this? Um, is the NHS particularly good? Is it about average, or is it, or is it worse than average? Are there systems that are that are doing better? And in that context, I've seen some people uh, talk about the German healthcare system, for example, which is one of those uh, possible alternatives that I'm talking about in the book. Not suggesting to copy and paste that system that has its its own downsides uh, that that I also talk about, but just that principle that you could have 
a universal insurance system with lots of private competing providers, um, a system where healthcare is largely private, but which is nonetheless an egalitarian system, which does cover everybody and where the rich don't automatically get better healthcare than, than the poor. You could absolutely have that in, a, in, a, in an otherwise very market-based system. And um, since the pandemic, I've, I've seen a bit of curiosity about that, which never happened before. I've, I've never seen anyone talk about either either the German healthcare system or any of its relatives. I mean, it is uh, the neighbor countries have similar systems to Netherlands, Switzerland, Belgium. And I've, I've seen a bit of curiosity about that. I've even seen a new statesman journalist, uh, Jeremy Cliff, making the case uh, writing quite positive or tweeting uh, quite making some positive noise about that kind of system he was making what you could call a left-wing case for a german style healthcare system because he says in a system like that it's easier to raise money for healthcare so he isn't interested in in competition per se in in um, in private sector involvement per se his goal is to raise more money but that's not incompatible it is true of course that if you pay health insurance premiums, if you know that the money you pay goes directly to healthcare and not to the government, not to politicians. In such a system, it's easier to, to raise money for healthcare because there is support for that. People want to, people are, most people are prepared to spend more on healthcare. It's just that in our system, that would mean higher taxes. And uh, if you have higher taxes, well, you have no guarantee that this will really go towards healthcare. Whereas in a, in a system which is less politicized in a more depoliticized system you you can do that you can you can raise health insurance premiums and people would know this goes towards healthcare this goes towards something that i want to contribute to that i'm prepared to spend more on this doesn't go towards say vanity infrastructure projects that i don't want to spend money on and therefore in a system like that you, you can raise money and, and then that's that's that would be a left-wing case for that system. That wouldn't be my main priority, but there's nothing inconsistent about the case that he makes. Isn't one of the advantages of having a big system, though, that you can share knowledge and data and and skills between that whole system rather than having lots of smaller independent companies that can't share any information, can't learn from each other? The experience of coronavirus would tend not to support that argument thus far, Paul, I would suggest. Well, that, that's just, to be fair, that's just one, one instance. Um, you, you know, we, we've, got to, we've got to look, there will always be an exceptional case to everything, and that, that could be the exceptional case. But I, I'm thinking in different terms, like, for example, how Australia, for example, did extremely well during the Olympics by many years ago by going across to all the different academies and share, just sharing knowledge between all of them and coordinating everything so that if somebody learned something, they shared it with everybody else and that, that made the whole system better. And you could have that with the NHS. You might not necessarily have it with other, um, you know, smaller independent companies. Okay, but normally the way we learn from each other in a market economy isn't by explicitly sharing information it's by different actors doing things differently and then just observing outcomes and, and uh, looking at which approaches work better and and which don't this is normally the way competition generates knowledge that we have lots of different actors doing things very differently 
and uh, them learning from each other through trial and error. This is how competition is itself a knowledge creating process. And that's something that you don't have in a centralized bureaucracy where everyone does more or less the same thing. Uh, you, you can still share knowledge when, when you with lots of uh, independent actors. That's not necessarily a contradiction. You, you have cooperation in a in a market economy as well. Um, competitors can nonetheless uh, cooperate in certain respects. My, my One of my favorite examples of this is that, uh, well, you don't see them so much nowadays, but there was a time when you could see the, uh, the EasyJet uh, shuttle service, that they were transporting passengers to airports with, with, a, with a little shuttle service, uh, EasyJet, and it said on that, that minibus, uh, it, it said, we even transport Ryanair passengers. <laughs> and uh, of course, EasyJet and Ryanair are competitors. Once you are at the airport, uh, EasyJet wants you to choose EasyJet, Ryanair wants you to choose Ryanair. In that respect, they are absolutely competitors, but they have some uh, common interests. So one of them is they want you to get to the airport. And there's no reason why competitors can't cooperate where they have shared interests. And um, this this is something that, that is quite widespread in market economies. For example, uh, in in my original home region, which is uh, the, the Palatinate region in, in the southwest of Germany, it's a wine growing region, you have lots of small scale wine producers. Uh, they are all competitors because, of course, uh, if each one of them wants you to consume their wine and not their competitor's wine. But there are certain functions where they nonetheless pool their resources. Uh, for example, in the marketing and, and bottling of wine, these are things where you have economies of scale. So they set up uh, cooperatives, which are fairly big. You, you, would, you, you can have dozens of small independent producers in a village, but just one big cooperative. And uh, they cooper cooperate in so far as they have shared interests through that cooperative. You, you can buy your wine there, you can do your wine tasting there, and everything that has to do with that, they would share the costs and, and work together. But they would still be competitors in the sense that once you are there, once you enter the building of the cooperative and you have to choose your wine, then um, they are back to being competitors. They are, in, in that situation, each of them wants you to buy their wine and not their competitor's wine. So th th this is something that, that happens in market economies all the time. Uh, and at the same time, the reverse is also true that just because you have a single organization, doesn't mean that you automatically share information and that everything is is uh, integrated. In fact, um, there has been quite a lot of literature on integration of health services from specialized think tanks that write only on healthcare, such as the Nuffield Trust and uh, and the King's Fund. And one of their themes is integrated healthcare. Uh, the, the very fact that I have to write about this so much. Um, shows you that this isn't something that automatically happens. And they often uh, complain about a siloed approach, compartmentalization, and uh, I don't know the details about this. It's just that the mere fact that they, they talk about this shows that having a, a single organization doesn't uh, automatically guarantee that, that you have uh, shared information and cooperation. You can have different departments within an organization very much working against each other. And to be fair, this isn't just the NHS. This is uh, 
something something that people who work for big companies also often tell you that mm. it often feels as if uh, different departments within a company are working against each other you get uh, tribalism within an organization you get this department not wanting to share anything with that department because they see each other as enemies and this is just the human nature this is just tribalism that we 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 form a, a tribal identity you start thinking well I'm on this team this is my department these are these are my people and the other guys are an enemy tribe uh, they want to free ride on our effort or whatever and we're not sharing our information with them we're not cooperating with them because they want to take advantage of us you get that thinking very much within single organizations as well so yeah i i, I can see why uh theoretically that would be the case that would be one of the advantages uh, of having a single organization that 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 you get this information sharing and uh, pooling of of knowledge uh, learning from one another but it's neither necessary nor sufficient you can have it with independent organizations and you can not have it with a single organization if that makes sense it's really interesting that you mentioned tribalism within a a, com- a corporate setting are you familiar with something called the clue train manifesto no never so clue, the clue train manifesto was was done in the late 90s and it's still up la- it's still online at site called cluetrain.com c-l-u-e-t-r-a-i-n and it was put together by people i think you can now acknowledge as sort of tech visionaries and they made precisely this point that um particularly in the pre-internet age a typical business would be either a a pyramid or a a a column where you had a guy and it would invariably be a guy as the ceo sitting at the top all information in that organization would feed up to that person but not necessarily any of that information would feed back down to the employees and the way that that organization would be structured would be you'd have the board the the senior managers scanning the horizon for businesses that looked as big and impressive as they are and the reality is that it, with the rise of the internet there can now be almost literally thousands if not millions of tiny worker ant type companies that are perfectly happy just to sort of scrabble around at the bottom and eat away their foundations piece by piece so in other words what it was saying 20 years ago when this piece first came out was the internet changes everything in terms of business as usual and i wonder if the internet hasn't already started on that line whether coronavirus might accentuate might might exacerbate that trend in other words you don't need to be big anymore and it it seems to me that we're going to see the the mother of all um withdrawals from globalization now as a result of of what coronavirus has given the world yeah that could be um that there there will be a backlash against globalization uh, we we already see that uh, people on the the communitarian right are making that argument people like Nick Timothy who was uh, who's the guru of mayism the guru of uh, of a, a, a more communitarian anti-market anti-liberal conservatism these people are making that case we've become too too uh, dependent on on other countries china in particular and we should reshore economic activity uh, find a, a new protectionism um yeah, as you would expect i i find that extremely unconvincing mm. uh, first of all the the international supply chains the the disruption there that really hasn't been the problem the reason why economies have uh, have been hit so badly and have, have shrunk so badly is uh, because of the disturbance the disruption of domestic activity it's what what happens here in britain that uh, that has led to this uh, this massive shrinkage this massive economic decline that that we've that we've seen in this quarter 
and it's it's because uh, of um, of sectors that just need human contact that that you can't organize uh, in a socially distanced way. Uh, gastronomy, of course, uh, above all, uh, and sectors like that uh, being uh, first of all forcibly shut down, and now even even now uh, that lockdown is is technically over, only very slowly springing back to life. This is what what caused the uh, the, the the economic hit. International supply chains have actually held up pretty well. I mean, shortages were were really not a problem. There were scare stories in for a while about uh, empty supermarket shelves, but uh, given how extreme this situation has been, this this really was just a, a short term thing, and that uh, sorted itself out pretty quickly. So, the idea that uh, that we need to become uh, economically self-sufficient is is just grotesque to, to, to me. It's uh, these are clearly people who never liked trade in the first place and who who dreamt of a, a localized Hobbit economy in which uh, <laughs> everything is done within a couple of miles from from where you live, and who are now using this using the pandemic as a as a way to argue for what they wanted to do anyway. And and this is something you see across the board. There's, there's, there's been a lot of confirmation bias going on in the wake of uh, coronavirus, people with completely different worldviews saying, this pandemic is uh, proof that I was right all along. Everything hmm. that I've always said, uh, now even more so. And that that's always a bit dangerous when something happens, and uh, you, you see that as a, a confirmation of everything that you've always believed. Then you should ask yourself, wait a minute, am I being honest with with myself here, or is is this just too good to be true? And the fact that the communitarians see this as a, a proof that globalization has failed, now we need localized economies, whereas socialists see it again as proof that that capitalism has failed, now we need socialism. You had Paul Mason, uh, the Trotskyite writers, uh, saying that uh, this pandemics happen in capitalism and, and somehow therefore this proves that, that we need uh, his version of socialism and that, that is the way to go. Isn't part of the problem that we don't really have proper capitalism anymore? Anyway, yeah, but even the 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 distorted capitalism that that we have has still held up pretty well, yeah. and uh, that that's why, I mean, sometimes uh, some some of the critics of my book uh, got back to me saying, yeah, well, you guys uh, about this that wasn't real socialism excuse for everything. Uh, some of my critics have said, well, you guys do it too. You also say that wasn't real capitalism, but there's a massive qualitative difference here. Uh, we people on the liberal side would say, yeah, this isn't ideal capitalism. This is a distorted version of capitalism. But they wouldn't use that as a way to to distance themselves from everything that happens and saying this has absolutely nothing to do with with uh, what I'm arguing for. A liberal would, would rather say, well, this gets this the the system in this country, the system in that country goes some way towards the system I want, and the outcomes are still pretty okay. I can live with that. However, it could be better still, and that's not a, an argument that a socialist would make about um, about say the German Democratic Republic or about North Korea. They wouldn't say, "Yeah, this is a good start, but it could be better still." They would say, "No, this has nothing whatsoever to do with me." And that's See, that's the big yeah, that's the, the big qualitative difference. Yeah, and yeah, yes, it is true, of course, that uh, we we don't have a a free market economy and never really have. We have a mixed economy. 
and uh, a lot of the state-dominated sectors. Uh, we talked about healthcare, housing is another one. These are the sectors that, that don't work properly. But on the whole, it could you could do a lot worse uh, than uh, living in in this country and this day and age, and especially now and, and during the times of the pandemic, it 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 could have been a lot worse. Uh, I, I mean, on the whole, um, yeah, the economy shrinking by a fifth is uh, sounds dramatic, but if you bear in mind just how extreme this disruption has been, it meant from one day to the next we suddenly had to build an economy without direct human contact, almost. Because up until March this year, almost everything we did somehow involved people going out and doing stuff with other people, and in one way or another. Uh, either going to an office uh, and working alongside your colleagues, or as a consumer, going to a pub, a restaurant, a football match, a concert. So much of our economic activity was based on people leaving the house and doing stuff together. And suddenly you couldn't do that anymore. This is as if somebody said, from tomorrow on, uh, everybody will have to, everybody has to tie their hands behind their back. Nobody is allowed to use their hands anymore. Or from tomorrow on, nobody is allowed to use the English language anymore. English is banned. And you somehow have to find a way to make the economy work without that. With all that in mind, I think we've, 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 done, we've done pretty well. You have so much uh, activity being shifted uh, online towards uh, deliveries, takeaway, uh, virtual events, all that sort of stuff, and uh, I mean, there are even virtual beer festivals now, <laughs> where where they send you a beer package, and then you then you get uh, tasting notes and brewery tours, all done through via Zoom or one of those softwares. I mean, Zoom itself. Uh, until March, I didn't even know Zoom existed, and uh, it's it's just we we have adopt, adapted very quickly, all things considered. Of course. The, the, the socially distanced economy that we have now is poorer than the, the socially non-distanced economy than, than we used to have. But uh, it, it, it could have been a, a lot worse. And it would have been if this had happened, say, 25 years ago with the internet in its early stages. Do you have any reservations about what central banks are doing to the purchasing power of money? Um Yes, but it's that's not that monetary policy is is, is an issue that uh, I haven't looked at for years. So uh, I'm I'm not uh, confident to uh, express a strong view here. But yeah, this this is something where I'm I'm generally sympathetic to uh, the Austrian school view that ideally. Uh, money should not be managed by state institutions at all. We should mm. we, we should have a a market in currencies, just mm. like uh, for everything else, be, because of the temptations to manipulate the money supply. And the current situation is, of course, uh, a situation where that uh, that applies even more. The temptation is even stronger. If if the the IEA could achieve nirvana tomorrow. What would and basically would then have to disband because it no longer had a had any job to do. What would what would what would the economy and society look like? Um, you talk about specific, a specific sector here, or yeah, yeah just, gen just generally, what what would that world look like that, that it doesn't it doesn't resemble today? Um, 
well, that it so it means different things in in different sectors. It would be. I mean, it also depends on who you, who uh, who you ask here. So, so, I'll, so I'll give you I'll give you another perspective. What we had a, a, a gentleman, um, Yegida Hulsman, on mm -hmm. um, about probably a year ago now, and he he teaches um, economics in um, France, and we and I think I think Gida would be perfectly happy to be described as a, an Austrian uh, school economist. And the thing that most surprised me when we asked him what what would you what would you change overnight, he said actually he'd, he'd, he'd get government out of the education system. So just as you you might have the perspective that it should have nothing to do with healthcare, he'd go one step further and say it shouldn't be in, it shouldn't be in the schools either. All right, um, yeah, I mean, government would withdraw under uh, from from a lot of things if if it were up to me. It would it would generally do a lot less, but I'm not a libertarian purist. I know Guido Hulsman, he he is more much more on the, on the, the libertarian purist side yeah. uh, than I am. Um, in my type of healthcare system, there is still state involvement. It's uh, I'm not describing a, a libertarian system there. I'm describing a system in which healthcare delivery is uh, is mostly private health insurance is mostly private but you still have government involvement in the sense that the government uh, makes sure that everybody can afford health insurance uh, the government subsidizes the insurance premiums of the poor the government makes uh, th there would even be it would be mandatory to to have health insurance it would still be a 100 percent uh, universal system where uh, where you couldn't opt out and it would be a bit like that for education as well i don't see a case for the state being an education provider there would be no no uh state-run schools in my system but it, but it could provide vouchers for example yes yeah so some, something like that uh, a voucher which pays for most healthcare, but which you could top up individually if you wanted to, where an ed education provider could say, we uh, we want to charge more than that. And um, I'd be I'd be okay with that. Or it could be the support could be on on a means tested basis. Uh, no very strong views there, but there would there would be no government run schools. There would be some some minimal testing um, just to make sure that uh, that that every child gets some education. That's that's again where I differ from the purists. Uh, the purists would say there should be no compulsory education uh, at all. And uh, but but I think this there this this is this is where my libertarianism ends. I think there would be parents who would just not be concerned about their children's education. And uh, it doesn't have to be many, but uh, this is where, where I would say one is is too many. Mm. Uh, these are there are some things that have to be universal, where you have to get as close as realistically possible to to 100 percent uh this doesn't have to be an, until and then until some, someone is 18 and it doesn't have to mean that the, the state controls the, the the details of it but having a, a minimum standard that all education providers have to meet and where you test do they generally meet them well if if not then then they wouldn't be allowed to operate and uh, but if once you do then it would be completely up to them what teaching methods they want to choose, uh, how they want to go about their business. And then I would be okay with homeschooling as well. If you can do that at home, just without a formal system, then then fine, then, then go for it by all means. But there would still be some some quality check to, to make sure that, uh, that everybody 
uh, every child at or, or or teenager at a certain stage, let's say when they when they when they're sixteen or whatever, uh, reaches a certain level. But how you get there, that would then be left to to the market. And um, yeah, that that would be the way I'd uh, organize a lot of. Uh, parts of what what is now the welfare system but this this isn't a, an IEA position as such this, this mm. depends on who you ask i have colleagues who are more more radical and more purist than me and and colleagues who are who are less purist um this this is uh, this is very much uh, I, I i can only really describe my own position here sure in which and and i would say yeah you, you would uh, the state would do a lot less and it would be a lot smaller. It would be some combination maybe of Hong Kong, Singapore and Switzerland, where uh, Hong Kong and Singapore uh, used to have government spending in the vicinity of 15% of, of, of GDP. And uh, but they, they still have some uh, some some government provided healthcare. I, I wouldn't do it in that way. I, I, I would have much more a pluralistic uh, education sector, pluralistic healthcare sector, and uh, that being run in a market way, the government just making sure that uh, that everybody gets a certain minimum quantity, a minimum package of healthcare, minimum package of, of education. And uh, in terms of political structures, I would want to make sure that that's all run in a way that's as decentralized as possible. That's why I'm bringing in Switzerland. Switzerland is a... Uh, is not a small state in that sense. Government spending on the whole, or, or publicly mandated spending, uh, if, you, if you count healthcare as well, is something like uh, one third of GDP. So it's it's not that, uh, that, that, that that's more than more than Hong Kong or Singapore. But what the state does there is done in a localized manner, mm. and that means that you can vote with your feet, which means it becomes a, a bit more market-like. You can realistically say. I don't like the public services as provided in this canton, so I'm moving to the next canton. It becomes almost a bit like the decision to switch to a different supermarket or to mm. a different energy supplier. Whereas between countries, you don't really get that. You won't mm. realistically, you won't get a lot of people saying, I prefer the way things are run in Denmark, so I'm I'm moving to Denmark. Uh, the language barrier alone makes that uh, not impossible, but hard for for a lot of people and therefore this this will only ever happen uh, at the margins or between neighbor countries with a with a shared language or at most similar language maybe just about between the netherlands and germany it might just about work but uh, that competition but uh, between uh, political entities can't really work at the level of nation states it has to be broken down to smaller levels and um, I don't have a, a view on how how big the scale of that has should be exactly. I can't say it should be a uh, hundred thousand people or one hundred fifty thousand people, but I would simply say it has to be the level where people can realistically move uh, without losing touch with um, with their family and and other things they value about their region, and that's where the the Swiss style of federalism, competition between cantons, and also competition within cantons between municipalities that that is the way to go rather than uh, me as a think tanker coming up with a detail with an exact list of what the state should do mm. uh have that sort of competition to to work that out you could have and, and this does happen to some extent you can have 
some cantons that have higher taxes than others and also provide more generous public services. So that means uh, you can have a place that is a bit more like Sweden uh, with high taxes and very, uh, very generous universal services. And you can have a place within that that's more like Hong Kong or Singapore where where the government provides less and you then need some system to make sure that people don't live in a low tax canton and, and go pop over to the border to the high tax canton to consume all the public services for free. You would have some some residence check, but that does happen and, and, and that, that can be done. And that would be rather my ideal system. Uh, Decentralise things to a low level and then let these smaller entities work out what they want to do collectively and what they don't. And uh, this could mean in some places you could still have them locally run schools run by the, the municipality. In others you wouldn't, might not have that. It would all be done purely through private companies and charities. Which country would you say is the closest example of, of how you would like to see the UK operate? That would have to be Switzerland itself. Uh, I, I think that's be that's a place where you've uh, consistently had high levels of economic freedom. They've uh, in all these uh, economic freedom indices, uh, ease of doing business indices, they have consistently been in the top ten for decades. And I think it is this decentralized structure which ensures that that it it stays that way, that uh, it makes. Um, it it creates a bit of a, a feedback mechanism. You could, in principle, have a, a canton that acts like some of the socialist-controlled uh, British councils that existed until the 80s, uh, where, where you have socialist Liverpool and, and that being run by uh, by militant, but the militant tendency, which is now, which has since become the Socialist Party, Trotsky Party. You could have that in principle, but we don't observe that in Switzerland. There is no Trotskyite canton. There is no uh, no socialist canton, even though they, they could if they wanted to. It's just that if they did, a lot of people would just leave that canton. A lot of companies certainly would pull out. A lot of net contributors would pull out. And there is, uh, the feedback mechanism is just uh, is, 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 is quick and more direct. And that's something we wouldn't have if we had a socialist government at the national level, where the, the connection between the, the way you express your political preferences and the policies that you actually get, get uh, that, that link is too tenuous. Whereas at a local, at a smaller level, you get a more direct feedback mechanism. If there was a Trotskyite canton, they would immediately see that uh, they would be doing a lot worse than the non-Trotskyite cantons around them. There would be a strong incentive to, uh, to reverse those policies. And uh, you get the political process would become more like a market process where you have where where stupid ideas just get punished instantly <laughs> whereas in a, in a big political entity you can hide for many years yes. that's that's why it, it it went on in venezuela for for so long and then still does uh, because it's 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 too big if they had if you had venezuela style politics in in one swiss canton it would have been over within two years mm. because all the net contributors would have left that canton. Too many people would have left. But at the level of a of a nation state, it can persist for decades. And who knows when it will be over? Hopefully quickly. But um, at at the time of recording, it's it's still going on, and and that's always been a problem uh, with uh, politics at the national level that you don't get this uh, quick, instant feedback mechanism that we get in markets. 
And, and and that more than a specific policy program is is what what I would like to see. It's not so much that I would uh, come uh, with my list, my checklist of uh, saying this makes this. Uh, these are the ingredients for the classic liberal utopia. It's more to have an overall system in which mistakes get punished quickly and uh, people can opt out of policies they don't like, voting with your feet, moving to to a place that matches more or less your political preferences. That's the, the sort of system I would like to see. In Switzerland and Liechtenstein, you can include Liechtenstein here, um, technically a, a country of its own, but uh, associated closely with Switzerland outsourcing some public services to them where they are too small to do it themselves. That's the sort of system that that, uh, that I would like to see. Given Brexit, well, do you think we're on a on a path more towards Switzerland? Would you be optimistic about that? Or do you think that this is just a, a fantasy that we're never going to get, we're never going get to get um, to? It's not completely impossible that, that, that we get it, but it would not be because of Brexit. Uh, I'm not a Brexit here. I I was initially. Uh, I've, I've been been a Eurosceptic for a long time. Still am of sorts. But um, it, it's this whole uh, process that I've just described of uh, making politics more market-like, generating competition between political entities. That only works properly if you have the freedom to move around easily. Uh, for people, but also for capital, for for companies, uh, integrated labor markets, integrated capital markets, and, uh, and borderless, frictionless, free trade, free movement zones. And Brexit is in some respects the opposite of that. There has always been a perfectly uh, consistent and logical uh, liberal critique of the EU, the, the kind of argument that uh, that liberal conservatives like Daniel Hannan and Douglas Caswell have made for decades since since the 90s, or at least in Hannan's case, don't know about Caswell, but Daniel Hannan has been has been doing this since the early 90s. That's a, a, a tradition that that that's the kind of Euroscepticism that, that I'm absolutely comfortable with. And uh, in fact, that, that overlaps massively with, with my own. I would simply say that that is not the case that won the referendum. And um, a lot of liberal Brexiteers are deluding themselves into thinking that 52% of the country think like them. Well, no, they don't. Uh, liberal Brexiteers, uh, their, their argument seems to be that just because they are not xenophobic and because they don't have a problem uh, with, with, uh, with with individual people from continental Europe, just because for them it is about political structure, they extrapolate from that and, and simply assert that 52% of the country think that way. But they don't. For some people, it really is motivated by xenophobia. And uh, we and, and Brexiteers shouldn't kid themselves. The liberal Brexiteers, that is. They, they shouldn't kid themselves that this is a, a victory for, for, uh, for, for liberalism and and democracy and uh, and and decentralized governance no for some people it really was just about that they they are annoyed by the fact that they hear someone speak polish and for for them voting in that way was their way of expressing that and that's why why freedom of movement became this uh this totemic issue there is nothing uh inconsistent about being a brexiteer who is relaxed about freedom of movement, or a Brexiteer who is even actively in favor of freedom of movement. Yeah. In fact, that would, that, that would be almost exactly my position. Um, 
And uh, over the years, freedom of movement was never such a big issue for British Eurosceptics. And this this is more this is something that you that you got uh, among far right parties on the continent that they were Eurosceptics because they wanted to stop foreigners from coming here, from from coming to their country. And something that was never really a, a thing in 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 Britain. Here it was much more. Originally, the argument was uh, we want. Um, democratic decision-making here at the national level or below. We don't want uh, to be run by a transnational bureaucracy. Uh, we don't want to be governed from, from Brussels. That is very much a liberal argument. Uh, but th that was all before the referendum and, and that was all before uh, ending freedom of movement became the all defining issue. But then very quickly uh, that did become the issue once it became uh, a bigger thing. And that's not even because the, the people who ran the Vote Leave campaign wanted it to be that way. It's just, I think it was Dominic Cummings himself who, who talked about that in, in either an interview or a blog piece, I can't remember. But he said somewhere that the reason why they made it so much about immigration and ending free movement was simply that that is what always came up in the focus groups. Mm. That they, they would start talking about something else. They would talk about free trade, uh, being able to make your own laws and uh, and all these more, more, more liberal pro-Brexit arguments. But he said that wherever you started, it always goes back to, to immigration. People would bring that up unprompted. And if you try to uh, divert the conversation to something else, they would bring it back to that. So uh, that is the case for Brexit that won the referendum. It's not the, the liberal argument. Um, as much as I sympathize with the liberal pro-Brexit argument, it is simply not the argument that won. Maybe one in five or one in four Brexiteers are liberals. The rest are, are, are very much not. And unfortunately, they are uh, the ones who, who won. Therefore, Brexit on a whole is not going to make Britain a more liberal place. So that, that's why I've given up on, on Brexit. Um, I, I was pro-Brexit until 2017 and then was more or less on the fence uh, afterwards for, for for two or three years afterwards saying, yeah, it could still work out all right. Uh, but um, the way it Brexiteers then became ever more more purist and ever more dogmatic about uh, the, the, the free movement issue, which never was a big issue for them before, suddenly became the all defining issue that uh, that made me give up on on Brexit. So if, if short summary, if Britain becomes more more Swiss-like, it will be uh, despite Brexit, not because of it. I guess what part of the issue with Brexit, as I would describe it, is it's like a giant mirror and people see in it what they want to see in it. So it's like a kind of magical mirror. Um, the reason that certainly I was pro-Brexit, uh, I think it's coming to pass now, maybe it's coming to pass now, maybe that's just wishful thinking on my part, that the way I would describe it is it comes down to economic structure that um, I would, if, if, if you believe a building is on fire, it makes sense to try and get out before the roof falls on you. And so it, it seems entirely plausible to me that the euro could actually break up um, within the not too distant future, simply because if nothing else, it's a matter of size. That in any entity, there's a guy called Albert Barlett who, who used to do an amazing presentation on this. You can find on YouTube quite easy. It's very popular. It's had millions of views. Albert Barlett's proposition is that for any entity beyond maturity, further growth is either obesity or cancer. And that what the EU represents is 
not Europe, but what the EU represents is a is an institutional entity that's just that grown itself. It's no longer fit for purpose. It's just too big. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh, that that's why I said I, I, I am a Eurosceptic of sorts. Uh, giving up on Brexit has not turned me into a Europhile. Do you either. do you do you uh, think do you think though there is a risk that the it, I mean, at the moment, all the narrative is about the weak dollar, and obviously we've had a new new high very recently in the price of gold. But do you think there's a there is a future world in which the euro itself, the, the in in the longevity of the euro, starts to be called into question simply because of all the different the the tension, if you like, between uh, a bluntly more affluent north and a bluntly poorer south. And we now got a uh, in the aftermath of coronavirus, we now have a an economic situation which is probably as bad as it's been for a hundred years, arguably. Um, as everyone jockeys to get their sh their snout in the trough, the whole thing is actually just pulled apart. The trouble with that is that's what people said in the uh, during the original eurozone crisis. Uh, there were predictions that it, it's going to break up; it can't last. I never believed that for a second, because in the core countries, there is a, a, an immense ideological support for it still, um, even in the countries that are in, impoverished. And this may not be a majority uh, of you. you. You might not see you might see in opinion polls that uh, quite a lot of people uh, disagree with it and, and, and uh, would, would rather not have it. But it's just that... Uh, being pro-euro there is the high-status opinion. And the thing with political opinions is, uh, unfortunately, that the ones that are associated with the highest um, social status are the ones that, that win. The uh, the, the Eurosceptic, I mean, Eurosceptic in, in the narrow sense, uh, being sceptical about the euro as a currency project, uh, that kind of scepticism has, um, even though there's, there's perfectly sound economic arguments for being sceptical about uh, monetary union at that level, uh, the trouble is that that's, that's always been a low status opinion. It's been um, tarred with the, the brush of uh, being somehow uh, snobbish about Southern Europeans being um, being xenophobic, and that's why even if somebody made a perfectly sound economic argument, their opponents would simply say, "Oh, you you just uh, don't like Italians." Um, yeah, but just, that that would be a ridiculous uh, argument. I mean, but what you could yeah, say, what you could say is, "What about the the forty or fifty percent or whatever the figure is?" I must confess, I don't know, but it's probably a lot worse after coronavirus uh, of youth unemployment in countries like. Italy and Spain, Portugal. What about what about those intractable problems that the eurozone just has failed to to deal with, and it is getting increasingly worse? How can anybody say that that this system is working when you've got this massive fragmentation between these economies? Yeah, in in a rational world, uh, the euro wouldn't have happened, or it would have happened at a at a much smaller scale between much more similar uh, economies. Uh, you, you would you would have several, several uh, euros side by side, some something like that. In a rational world, it wouldn't have happened, and in a um, in or at at the very least. Policymakers would would have accepted their mistake once the eurozone crisis hit, and would have uh, let several members of the currency union exit it early on. 
But if if we lived in in that rational world, it it would have happened already, and uh, it, it would have happened ten years ago. But but it didn't. There's just this massive political determination to to carry on, and I'm afraid that's just the way it. it it uh, it is going to continue that you will continue to see elevated levels of uh, particularly youth unemployment in the the structurally weaker economies and high levels uh, ever increasing levels of of transfer spending and that will then cause resentment in in northern europe uh, that there will be like we saw during the the greek crisis you, you will have uh, the tabloid press in germany say, uh, saying uh, your hard-earned money is, is going to to uh, to bail out the greeks and you will see you will see the uh, the the greek tabloid press coming up with nazi caricatures uh, they, they will show you some uh, some teutonic uh, blonde blue-eyed figure and uh, something saying these people are um, are bullying us they want to to run our country and 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 you will just have this this uh, this festering mutual resentment which which is just what you get when when uh, integration goes uh, when political and economic integration goes beyond what what people are naturally happy to accept that that that's just the difference between uh, why we're more or less comfortable with uh, London, um transferring money to wales uh wales being you could say wales is this, despite some um some devolution is largely run from 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 uh from london but you don't get this massive uh, backlash against it and in, in, uh, in uh, welsh people seeing this as an alien invasion there is just enough of a um, of a of a team spirit within Britain, as as you get uh, with within within other countries, uh, West Germans are more or less okay with um, large fiscal transfers to to Eastern Germany, and uh, and and them be they are more or less okay with with being in the main governed from. Uh, from Berlin and and, uh, and and not being an autonomous self-governing region, but uh, trying to transfer that to uh, a region which doesn't have that team spirit, doesn't have a common language, doesn't have common political narratives, that's where you get uh, resentment. I'd, I'd say it goes too far already within countries, uh, hence the case for, for decentralization within countries. And it also it already goes too far with the structural adjustment funds that that exist um, in the EU right now. But of course, the eurozone bailouts that that meant uh, taking that to a whole new level. That uh, meant going 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 way above what we already had. But um, elites just insisting that this is our project and. We'll, we'll press on with it. Everyone who's against it is a bigot and a xenophobe and, uh, and someone who just doesn't understand it. And um, in that sense, I'm, I'm totally in line with the, the Eurosceptics. And if Britain had been part of the, of the Eurozone, then I'd probably still be a, a Brexiteer. Then I would probably still say it, it was worth it for that reason alone. But since... Britain was never uh, part of that anyway. I say it's not directly a Brexit argument. It's uh, a bullet that we've dodged anyway. Mm. But yeah, ideally, um, a Swiss-style relationship, uh, having the right kind of economic integration 
having free movement, having the full freedoms of the single market, uh, but not being part of uh, of the eurozone and most of the political integration. That that is as good as as it gets. That's as close to ideal as you as you could get. Why do you think that identity politics has suddenly become so ferocious on both sides of the Atlantic over? Well, this year, do you think do you think it has anything to do with the lockdown and coronavirus? No, it it was there before. It's um, just that this uh, police murder in the U.S. triggered a, a new wave, and initially, initially justified. Of course, they they do have issues with uh, police police violence, but we but we uh, don't have those issues here in anything like the same way. Yeah, that that shows it that uh, that it isn't really about that. That was a, yeah. a catalyst, a, a trigger event. And um, and it, it was nonetheless copied and pasted. You then had the same kind of movement springing up in in various other countries, uh, even even though they they don't have anything like the the, the police violence that that uh, exists in the states. That shows you that that it isn't uh, really about that. To to the extent that it was, it, it was justified that there was a a counter reaction, but it went far beyond and became just more generally about identity politics and uh, and and peddling victimhood narratives. Mm. And no, it was it was there before. It is just recently flared up. I think it's simply what what happens is that uh, progressives, broadly defined, have have won the argument on everything. They have what they, they already live in their utopia. They have nothing else to do. They have no enemy to, to fight against. Um, on that, I'm sorry to interrupt on that point. Someone put it in a great way that the left has won the culture wars. Now it's just going around shooting the survivors. <laughs> yeah, you, you could you could put it that way. What happens is that for, for a lot of people, uh, progressivism has in the meantime become uh, an identity, a way of life, a way in which they define themselves. And there is just this conflict at the at the heart of progressivism that on the one hand, uh, progressives want to force their views on everybody. They want everyone to be as woke and progressive as they are. But it's also that they use their own progressiveness, their own... Uh, their own views as a as a marker of distinction. A woke opinion nowadays is a way to distinguish yourself from other people. A way of saying I'm better than all the plebs with their unenlightened views, uh, because I can see that uh, this word or that behavior or this movie is problematic, whereas you can't. Uh, but that's because I'm more enlightened. I can see microaggressions that you can't. I can see problematic um, opinions that you can't. I'm a more enlightened individual than you are. It's, it's become this this marker of distinction and um, the problem here is that once uh, progressives manage to force their speech codes on, on, on everybody, once they get universally adopted, then they cease to be markers of distinctions and progressives then have to try to distinguish themselves in some other ways. And this is something that we've seen uh, in pop culture for decades, that you have some something emerging as a counterculture. If you think of uh, grunge music in, in the early 90s, Nirvana, uh, and uh, that's my Great earliest... Band. Love them. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's my earliest... Uh, that's, the best, that's the best video of the 90s, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, uh, 
the, 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 what happened at that time was that this was the first time I experienced this, this process consciously that you had uh, early adopters, early Nirvana fans who uh, then were dismayed when it became mainstream. They mm. hated it mm. because uh, they wanted once, it all for themselves. Yeah, because it's a mar- it was a mark of distinction initially uh, in the very early 90s. But then once Nirvana had chance success, it suddenly ceased to be that. And um, it, it became absolutely mainstream. And at that time, in, in, in the mid-90s, uh, around the time Kurt Cobain died, there were, at my school alone, it was it was full of um, of Kurt Cobain clones. A lot of uh, the boys in particular tried to imitate his style, his looks, and it, it did was... They, did, it was they, did they blow their heads off in the end? Uh, they, they didn't go that far. They... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I saw this. I saw this trend in the eighties. The first time I can remember it was it was when Smash Hits. For my shame, I very briefly used to read Smash Hits. I'm not sure it's even going there. But Smash Hits claimed ZZ. They had a, a readers' poll, and Smash Hits won as best new band. And they'd only been going for about uh, this is ZZ Top. I'd only been going for about thirty years by the time this poll was released. <laughs> <laughs> Smash Hits viewers had never bloody heard of them. Yeah, but this this is what happens then with with early adopters that they uh, then absolutely hate it when uh, when their tastes that they thought of as countercultural and and unique and something for for the few who are in the know suddenly becomes mainstream and they can no longer distinguish themselves uh, and and that's why at, at my school at the time you you had a lot of uh, hostility from from the early Nirvana fans and and then the the, the early metal fans. Uh, trying to distinguish themselves from the posers, uh, the ones who, yeah. are, who aren't real. And th- th- there were people who were absolutely obsessed with this, who could talk about this 24 hours a day, uh, how you could spot the difference between uh, the real thing and the poser. And then this, this became an, an identity for, for a lot of people. And this is what happens now with, with woke opinions, that starts with an, with, with an elite, but then, of course, you get companies uh, saying, oh, this is the trendy thing to do now. Um, and, and then they are yeah, of course, all, all of them, and and, and then uh, the, the initial woke people absolutely hated that their cause is now mainstream, and the big companies are moving in on it, and everybody um, just uh, signals in that way how woke they are. That means the original woke people have to look for something else. And that's why it has to move on and on and move to more obscure causes. And that's why this. Sorry to interrupt. statues. Yeah, go on. Sorry to interrupt. On that point, I noticed there was a story in the FT saying, I think it was yesterday, that um, Lloyd's had been um, given a a favorable credit rating by Moody's because of its commitment to diversity in its its employees. In other words, by, by promising to have more black employees, Lloyd's has improved its credit rating. And well, what I'm what I'm suggesting is that in the in the financial services industry, we should introduce the wokies as an equivalent to the Oscars, whereas where the wokiest companies can be rewarded for their general advanced wokeness by comparison to the rest of us. Yeah, that could even be a sound judgment. Uh, it wouldn't be the the diversity per se. I mean, the the financial sector is in any case a very meritocratic. Uh, competitive sector and, and therefore it's always been uh, well not always but it's long been very diverse uh, that, that is really not the issue that uh, you would have to worry about if, you, if you're a woke culture warrior but it, it could be if, the, if they manage to uh, turn that into part of their brand um, that that really could 
be um, an additional uh, ingredient to being successful. And in, in that sense, it's, it's not even it's not even irrational to improve their credit rating if, if you think this is what, what will drive market demand. And for the same reason, you, you could have improved uh, Ben & Jerry's credit rating once, once they started to position themselves in with their woke ice cream. And, uh, <laughs> that if you think this is what the market demands, well, it isn't the market per se, but it is the, the loudest customer segment. And in that sense, why not? I, I, I had I had all these all these things all these these squibs to lob at Christian and he successfully managed to sort of <laughs> he's done a great job of, he's deflected deflected all of them yeah I mean my my question would be and I know you, you you're obviously talking about nuances here with all these arguments um, I just I know we we moved away from it a little bit but I did want to ask it at the time given that we have got Brexit have, aren't we potentially able to move closer to Switzerland? Because how, how can the Eurozone reform itself enough to go anywhere near towards the Swiss model if we indeed have that as a as a long-term goal, potential goal? Um, the Eurozone itself probably won't, although it's, um, it's not going to become something all-encompassing. Uh, it will mean greater fiscal transfers, and and uh, closer political integration, but you could still have fairly liberal economies within that. It's not going to become all-consuming. The reason why I oppose it is 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 that it will cause uh, permanent resentment between northern and southern Europe, uh, between bringing up old conflict lines that that haven't played a role, haven't been an issue for for decades, and suddenly that needlessly comes back. Greek-German relations in particular were excellent before the the Eurozone crisis. There's no issue whatsoever there. That uh, that there was even a a survey, a poll in in Greece uh, a couple of months, I think, before the, the, the first bailout package, before before uh, the Eurozone crisis really broke out, uh, which other European country they admire the most or have to post the most positive image of or, or, or some, something like that, I can't remember exactly. But, but it, it turned out that uh, the Greeks had an extremely positive view of Germany at the time. And, and, and uh, just a few months later, that, that seemed ridiculous, that, that you had this, uh, this tabloid warfare and just needlessly flaming tensions uh, which didn't exist before um, just because of a, a politically motivated project. That would be my, my main objections uh, to it. And also the fact that even though some of the reforms that, uh, that, uh, that the Eurozone institutions are demanding, so, such as a a more liberal labor market in, in Southern Europe are not wrong per se. And that, that is ideally what, what the Mediterranean countries should do anyway, uh, Euro or no Euro, they, they, they absolutely have that issue with their, their labor markets being too rigid. But it's just not going to work if it's seen as a, an imposition from Northern Europe. Then it will be just like a, a structural adjustment package by the International Monetary Fund, um, which just causes resentment, sees it as a as an imposition. It, it seems like uh, North Americans forcing poor countries to, uh, to adopt a more neoliberal economic model. Uh, even if there's nothing, if the package itself is is fairly sound and sensible, it's just that these 
political structures of, of uh, that being seen as an imposition, that is what uh, makes it less likely that it lasts and uh, that that there is a local buy-in that, that people accept it and and uh, see it as, as something uh, as, as something homegrown that is less likely if uh, if it's seen as something that's imposed on you by foreign elites and that 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 is the problem with the with um with the eurozone but i don't see it as, as bad enough to to tank the whole whole eurozone i i, I don't think it will lead to um, to a permanent economic decline. You can still have very prosperous regions within it. It's just that they would be, north and south would be even better off without it because you, you wouldn't have uh, Northern Europe being, being weighed down with the weight of these fiscal transfers. You wouldn't have the, the resentment and, and you might have a, a reform process in, in the south. Um, that uh, in just like what, what did happen in the 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 course of the preparation for the eurozone there was quite a lot of reform happening already uh, in the process of of getting ready for the euro in the 90s that's when uh, when economies in, in southern europe were to some extent liberalized and, and ideally that is the way uh, they should go and they're trying to to do it themselves but not because they feel that they're they're uh, pressurized into doing this from from Northern Europe, so that would be more my my objection. But I wouldn't relate it to to um, to Brexit per se. It would be even if uh, if Britain had remained, uh, Britain wouldn't have got sucked into the the eurozone arguments. I mean, there this is one of those areas where uh, Britain has has its opt outs, and that's uh, I think a fairly stable uh, arrangement. But even if it weren't, um, my objection isn't against. Brexit per se. I've said after the referendum, what we should do is to make it easier, go for a Norway-style arrangement. Now, uh, that's what I used to to bang the drum for 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 uh, I think three years or so after the referendum. Uh, go for the Norway option as a at least a transitional arrangement, and then see how how that works out. Uh, where yes, you would still. Bound, be bound by uh, by a lot of single market regulation, and, and and that's not ideal. But it would would have been the best way to get out of it quickly. We, we, it would be a an off the shelf solution. We we could have had we could have got Brexit done within months by just copying the Norway option. And uh, this uh, more than three years of of haggling and arguing over nothing but Brexit, and three totally lost years, and with the the bitterness that that caused on all sides and, and Brexit turning into a massive culture war issue. That's something we could have avoided by just going for the Norway option. And then once you have that, from there, it would be a lot easier to move to a Swiss-style arrangement from there. Because then you've, you're already out of a lot of EU programs and you are clearly no longer a member of the, the EU proper. And then it would be a matter of making this... Um, membership of an outer tier of the EU, the, of the, the membership of the European Economic Area, uh, modifying that, becoming uh, rather than a full a fully signed up member of the European Economic Area, become something like an, like an associate member, uh, have some arrangement that stops short of full membership. And that would be what Switzerland is. Switzerland is not in the European Economic Area. They just have an arrangement which is uh, for, for most intents and purposes 
quite close to being a member, but with with greater autonomy than an actual member has. And um, I think that would have been the ideal sequence. Move to a Norway-style arrangement first, leave the EU, leave the customs union, but stay for now, for the time being, in the single market. That could have happened in 2016 already. And then just work on that. Uh, let the new reality settle in. And uh, after four or five years, which is more or less where we are now, now would have been the time to revise the arrangement that has come out of that um, and and see see how how it's gone, whether that is still seen as an arrangement that is that is too close to the EU and leaves too little regulatory autonomy, in which case now would have been a good time to say, okay, we've made the big step. We now want an, an additional step to move a step further away from the EU. We've moved into this outer tier from being an EU member in 2016 to just being an EEA member like Norway in, say, uh, at the end of 2016 or in 2017. And uh, now would have been a good time to say, right, we've had this arrangement in place now for, for three years. And... Um, Let's do some stock taking. What bits of that are we happy with? And where do we feel that we are still too closely tied to, to the EU? Does it, is it really a case of uh, being uh, all pay, no say? Does it feel like we're still a de facto member, in which case let's move even further away? And that would have been a good time to look at uh, the, the Swiss arrangement and uh, to say, well, is there something and this for us, that would have been the ideal sequence. Yeah. I mean, if a country, I just think it's in simple terms, if a country loses control or has no control over their currency, then they have then lost a marker or a discipline for which they can hide a lot of economic issues. So in other words, you, you know on the global stage that if you are managing your own currency, then other countries won't buy your bonds if you're irresponsible, your currency will weaken, and that weakening process actually has a positive effect with more capital coming in to buy cheap goods and services, and it balances out. So you can have aggressive swings and cycles, but don't fear those cycles because they, they balance themselves out over time. And the, the problem with the euro sounds like a great idea, just have one currency so businesses will have greater efficiency working with other businesses. But in practical terms, it's 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 like giving a group of companies the same credit rating, no matter what assets they've got, and no matter what their lending criteria is or whatever their business practices are. In practice, this just does not work like this. The, the, the lira has, for, over, for many hundreds of years, been weaker than the Deutschmark. Why did people think that you would just suddenly lock all these currencies together and everything would be all right when history has shown that that is not the case. And these continual adjustments and bailouts and programmes that have gone on have only just furthered the problem and taken you further deeper down this this rabbit hole without actually solving any of the fundamental problems. And so, therefore, my feeling is that the fundamental problem can only be solved by either Germany leaving and the... Um, the, the euro then weakening on the global stage or 
vice versa, um, the weaker countries leaving, being able to leave, not uh, being able to properly leave the programme in a way that they could be punished. If you have no way of leaving the Eurozone or the, or the currency, then it means that you have to be totally bailed out like a, like a teenager that's run up a big credit card bill. Um, if you know that your parents are always going to bail you out, then you'll just keep spending money. And that's kind of what, what is going on here. So there has to be a threat that you would be ejected from that club and they made no provision for exit, which is exactly what we saw with Brexit. And, you know, all the political uh, mudslinging was, just showed you how, how, how childish the whole thing had become and how lost in terms of its argument it, it had become because it, nobody's addressing the fundamental problems. So that, that's why I personally thought, well, at least that is a great step towards us solving these problems. We can at least make our own decisions and we can look to countries like Switzerland as a, as a model in many aspects from healthcare towards you know, how they manage their economies in terms of politics and everything else as to something that, that we, we could try to identify and operate with Europe in the same way. You know, we, we can still trade with Europe. Europe wants us to trade with it. I mean, we, we don't make cars. Germany will want us to buy their cars. They're going to lose out if we don't buy German cars. So how, how is this going to be in anybody's interest if we don't sort out a deal with them? And trying to make it worse than, than the countries that currently deal with them would just show them to be being, being very petty and, and bloody-minded about it. So... I'm I'm hopeful that this is a step that perhaps will shake up the eurozone um, to think how could they become better. Maybe if if it all gets sorted out, maybe it will reintegrate at some point in the future. Not that I'd personally want that, but I I I, I think the system does need a, a shake up in one way or the other. And as Margaret Thatcher said, if you think you can can buck the markets, the markets will buck you. And and what these politicians are doing is constantly trying to buck the market. They're constant, constantly pushing everything further down the road and hoping that bailouts and, and short-term fixes are going to fix the market. And, and they won't. There will be a currency crisis at some point. And that is when the people who are currently very pro the Eurozone will actually have a bit of a wake-up call because when you have massive inflation, and that could be something we're all faced with, th they will then change their views on, on how well this system is working for them. But, but I guess that remains to be seen. Yeah, I guess the problem was that uh, the, the idea was that uh, this market discipline that uh, that you're describing, with uh, on, on the bond markets, uh, some countries having to pay much higher interest uh, on bonds than uh, than than others. Uh, the idea was that this market discipline would just be replaced with political discipline, that um, you will no longer get punished for recklessness by uh, by the bond markets, by investors demanding a, a risk premium for, for lending to you, but you would be bound by political rules and that would be just as good, which uh, of course it it isn't. Um, in, in th there's, there's a massive difference here. First of all, we've seen that uh, these, these political rules, uh, the the Maastricht criteria, they're not enforceable because the, the, the Eurozone is, uh, is a halfway house. Uh, this is something that um, 
that you can enforce within a political union. That's why we, we can make sure within the United Kingdom that um, an individual municipality doesn't um, doesn't ridiculously overspend and amass a lot of debt. They just don't generally have enough uh, control over their spending to, to do that. Um, you can do it within a political federation, that's, but that's not what the Eurozone or the EU is. They don't, they don't have that. And there's also the fact that um, a market mechanism is, is an impersonal mechanism. It's not that you can blame a specific person when your risk premium goes up. It would just be uh, there's just nobody who's willing to lend to you at the old interest rate when you've just decided a massive spending package, which uh, nobody thinks will will uh, pay for itself by generating future tax revenue. And uh, there's just no specific person that you can blame. Whereas if there's a if there's a, a bureaucrat sitting in Brussels and saying, no, you must not spend on, on this item, then there is a person to blame. Then it seems like this is just the arbitrary decision of that person. And that creates a, a lot of enmity and, and animosity and, and resentment. And that's the whole problem with that process. No, I, I agree. We need the, the discipline of, of bond markets. And uh, ideally, you would have that not just at the level of nation states, but at, at lower levels. And that's uh, going back to my my uh, to my favorite Switzerland example here. Um, then that's something that does happen within Switzerland. Uh, different cantons, depending on their fiscal policies, uh, pay different interest rates. And even even cities, uh, there, there is variation between cities, depending on uh, bond market investors do judge them by their fiscal policies. And that's why it's a completely different story when a Swiss canton adopts something like a fiscal rule. Um, there, it isn't seen as something that the central government is imposing on them. It's something that they do voluntarily to signal to investors, we're, we're a safe place, come here and lend us money. That's something that they do themselves as a way in, the, in for the same reason that uh, a private company might come up with a, a generous uh, refund policy. That's their way of saying we are so confident that our product is good, uh, we can afford to be very generous with uh, with our refunds. And uh, in, in the same way, um, this, this becomes uh, having a... A, a fiscal rule or, or, or something like that becomes a way of, of signaling to investors, uh, you can trust us. We mean it. When we say we are responsible with our finances, we mean it. That's why we adopt those rules. That's why we uh, impose those rules on us. And it is then in their own interest um, to stick to those rules because there would be no point in, in imposing it. Uh, on yourself and then not following it because then of course the the bond market investors would say yeah well this is just a rule that just exists on paper this is this is pointless whereas if it is an imposition like the Maastricht criteria then of course individual uh, governments have an incentive to uh, to subvert it to try to find loopholes um, following the letter but not the spirit or trying to declare exceptions trying to declare everything as somehow not really part of the budget and trying to to get around it because it's some Something that that they don't see in their interest, whereas uh, the Swiss canton that adopts a fiscal rule, they very much it is in their own interest to to stick to it, because and that's why they've adopted it in the first place. But that also means you have to have local fiscal responsibility. It has to be possible for a sub-national government to go bankrupt, and that does happen in Switzerland. There was a, a famous case of a. 
municipality in Switzerland going bankrupt because they spend on on vanity projects. They built uh, a massive uh, uh, a sort of adventure park that, that uh, with swimming pools and stuff that that nobody wanted to go to and it was not commercially viable. And they um, they then faced insolvency, went to the cantonal government saying, "Can you bail us out?" And they said. No, sorry. This is our constitution clearly says you are responsible for your own finances, and uh, and there, there were then the, uh, investors having to take a haircut, and 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 that's good. And and since exactly. then, that's exactly that what hasn't happened again. But that's yeah, that's, yeah. that's 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 how it should work. That's like a perfect example. Are you um, are you writing anything at the moment? Are you? Is, is there any books in the works? I've got several projects that I'm thinking about, but none that are sufficiently advanced. Uh, at, at the moment, there might be a... Well, I've, I've got things in, in the pipeline that aren't published. I've written something on the Australian healthcare system um, as, a, as a sort of complement. I've, I've written about social insurance system, continental type, and uh, now looking at the Australian system as, as a complement to that. Um, I've written something on uh, a market in airport landing slots on a, a market-based mechanism auctions at, at Heathrow and, and Gatwick uh, because at, uh, at the moment they're still bound by old rules that uh, if British Airways has used a particular landing slot for, for a long time, then uh, the slot automatically still goes to them. Oh, uh, okay. uh, we have this, this uh, old-fashioned socialist way of, of uh, which is from before the airports were privatized, before the airlines were privatized, and this sort of, uh, we have this island of socialism, even though aviation has been has been liberalized. Uh, got a paper looking at how to resolve that. What, what countries uh, do that differently and better? Do they do it differently in America? Um, I think they've they've experimented on a on a small scale with something like auctions. That one one or two airports have uh, have done that, and with mixed results. As always, we're not saying this would solve everything, but uh, it 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 could uh, lead to a more efficient uh, allocation of of slots over time. Mm. But it's it's still it's still something that's uh, not widely implemented in in practice. Yes. Fascinating. Just a few pilots. Tim, should we go to Media Picks? Okay, I'll, I'll kick off. So this is something I haven't yet seen, but uh, I will be watching it later today. So I'm writing a piece at the moment about the nature of risk and the galumphing uh, metaphor I'm using is actually uh, something called Operation Anthropoid. Uh, I don't know if you've seen this, Paul, or heard of it, but no. the uh, Operation Anthropoid was basically the plot to assassinate Reinhard Heydrich who is essentially the creator of the final solution under the Nazis. And there was something called Operation Anthropoid, which was a special operations executive plot to, to, to assassinate him using some Czech um, resistance fighters. Um, we will put to one side, because it's a spoiler, I'm not going to say whether the plan was successful or not. Let's just say that there were massive reprisals and as a result also... Um, Three three death camps were then built, um, and so all, all I'm all I'm doing is it's obviously on the back of the essay. But I'm, what I, the question I'm, I'm posing is, if you knew what the potential aftermath of this was going to be, would you have de decided to to, to uh, execute that that plot or not? And then of course I'm you know, it's, 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 it's a ridiculous sort of sledgehammer approach to try and talk about market risk. But uh, anyhow, so there've been multiple films made about Operation Anthropoid. 
uh, two a year after it was conducted in 1942, uh, one in the 90s or possibly 80s, and then one in 2016 starring um, Killian Murphy, Toby Jones. Oh, and great. so I've got that ready, ready to watch now. I love um, Toby Jones. The reviews is superb. That, can't wait. To Toby Jones is yeah. Toby Jones is absolutely superb. So I haven't actually seen this yet, but I will. I will, I will provide a review on our next uh, next outing. Fantastic, Christian. I, I, I doubt whether Christian will have anything as crushingly inappropriate to uh, <laughs> <laughs> that. The gauntlet has well and truly been laid down now. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've seen the 2016 movie. Vaguely remember uh, a movie about the assassination of Reinhard Heydrich, or or, a lead, so, or, a, or attempted assassination, or attempted. Yeah, no one Don't give the game away. No, <laughs> <laughs> I would never. <laughs> Do do you have a do you have a favourite book or film or a media pick for us, Christian? Oh, um, or it could be it could be a good follow on Twitter. Someone, yeah, someone just anything. But pod. Um, wh- why don't I give you mine while you have a think? Because um, mine. Well, given what Tim said, my, I'm I'm leaning towards the fantastic Quentin Tarantino film Inglorious Bastards, which is an amazing film. Um, have you seen it, Tim? I have. Yeah. I have. What did you think of it? Well, all I can think of is, is the bravura performance by, is it Chris, Christoph? Christoph Waltz, yeah. Christoph Waltz. Absolutely yeah. superb. Um, so not, and and it's, also, it's always nice to have a nice bit of ultraviolet, Nazi-based ultraviolence to sort of kick-start your day. It's, uh, it's just such a great film. Um, I think one of his best, actually. But, uh, so, yeah. Yeah, that, I think I've seen that too, but couldn't say anything that wouldn't also contain spoilers. <laughs> <laughs> but, well, but on that note, uh, why, why ask about books, it's not a, not a favourite book, but one one I've read not too long ago was um, a book by Ben Elton, uh, Time and Time Again. Don't think it's been made into a movie yet, but it should be. The comedian Ben Elton. I think that is him. Yeah. I wasn't familiar with the name before. It's just that when once I tweeted about it, uh, everyone else seemed to know him. But it's a book about somebody who uh, finds a way to travel back in time and tries to prevent the uh, the First World War. So this sounds all, all a bit cliche, time traveller. Uh, somebody trying to change something and uh, and see what happens. But I'd say it's it's pretty well executed and uh, one one of the books of the genre that I would recommend. Brilliant. Fantastic stuff. Well, Christian, thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure and, you know, really appreciate you giving so much of your time. Yeah, I hope I wasn't uh, rambling for too long. No, it's all good stuff, all great stuff. Thank you so much. And if, if, people want to, what, do you want, if people want to find you, Christian, get in touch. They, What's the best way for them to do that? Twitter is probably the easiest. At K underscore Nemitz, N-I-E-M-I-E-T-Z. Brilliant. And then see how it goes. Brilliant. Well, good luck with the um, new projects and uh, and please tweet them out so we can see when they're coming to fruition. And once again, thanks for coming on the show. We'll put links to uh, all the places where you could be found in our show notes so everyone can look for those and, and obviously follow you and see see what you're up to so thank you so much once again no thank you my pleasure and uh, we hope to have you back so absolutely thank you Brilliant. thank you christian appreciate it take care bye now bye and thank you so much for listening we'll catch you next time this podcast is for entertainment purposes only please do your own research or contact a professional advisor